The Old Testament reading is Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. And this is the inerrant and infallible word of our God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is our uh, New Testament reading and our sermon text for this morning. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The last time we were in Romans, we heard uh, the Apostle Paul's ringing declaration in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we noted that that verse, verse 16, along with verse 17, is really the theme of the entire letter uh, to the Romans that Paul wrote. Uh, Paul will go on from these verses to unpack all the truths that are contained in the message of the gospel. It's also true to say that this message that Paul preached, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, is not only the theme of the letter to the Romans, but was really the theme of the life of Paul. Uh, His all-consuming passion What he devoted himself to, what he gave himself to, was to proclaim to all people the good news of Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ and in him alone there is salvation. But if we were to ask the question, what does Jesus Christ save us from, 
Or what is the power of God for salvation? Uh, That salvation is from what exactly? If we were to ask that question, we would just need to keep reading on in Romans because beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul gives us the answer to that question. And verse 18 is a kind of summary statement of his lengthy answer. In verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what we need to be saved from, what the gospel of Jesus Christ in fact saves us from, is the wrath of God that is deservedly ours because of our sin. That is the salvation that we need, salvation from God's wrath. Now, we can't think of the wrath of God in the same way that we think of the wrath of man. The wrath or the anger that you and I sometimes experience or that we observe in others is almost always an unrighteous wrath, a self-centered anger that overcomes us and causes us to lose self-control. But the wrath of God is something completely different from our own sinful outbursts of fury. God's wrath is righteous, it is measured, it is controlled, and it is just. The wrath of God is his holy revulsion and judgment against everything and anything that is contrary to his righteous character. And because God is God, because he is holy, he must and he does meet the sin of man with his wrath. And Paul says here in verse 18 that even now, even today, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, later in this chapter, Paul will tell us exactly in what way God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But for now, I want you to notice that Paul is speaking generally or universally about all people, the entire human race. When he says in verse 18, all godliness and unrighteousness of men, part of what that means is the ungodliness, the unrighteousness of all men. All people are guilty before God. All people are worthy to be the object of God's righteous anger against sin. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as Paul goes on from verse 18 and through the rest of chapter 1, he focuses specifically on the sins of the Gentile people. That is all people in the world who do not belong to the people of Israel. And then starting in chapter 2, Paul will focus on the particular sins of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, his own people. And so in our passage this morning and through the rest of chapter 1, Paul is describing the sins that were typical of the Gentile people in his day and indeed are still typical of people today. But all that he says here, although he's focusing on the Gentiles, all that he says here in chapter 1 and in our passage, this is a true description of the natural disposition of the human heart whether that is the heart of one who is a Gentile or one who is a Jew. And because what he says here in our passage does have application to all people, we will read these verses as a description of ourselves. 
That is, what we see here in this passage and in this chapter is what we are by nature, what we are in our sin apart from the grace of God. And more specifically, what Paul is describing here in our passage is the natural sinful response that is ours to the revelation that God gives us of himself through creation, through the things that he has made. And by nature, we do two things in response to the revelation of God in creation. First, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And secondly, we worship idols instead of the true God. So first, in response to God's revelation in creation, we, res- we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. At the end of verse 18, Paul says this about us, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the truth that we unrighteously suppress is the truth about God that he reveals to us in the things that he has made. Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God reveals the truth about himself. He makes himself known to us and to all people through all things that he has made, through the universe, the heavens, the earth. All that is created declares the glory of God. This is what theologians have called God's natural or general revelation. Now, there is another revelation that God has given to us. That is the revelation that he gives us in the scriptures, the revelation he gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. Not all people receive that special revelation, but all people at all times, everywhere in the world, receive the revelation that God makes through his creation. This is why it is called general revelation, because it is received by all people, regardless of when they lived, where they live. God makes himself known to all. And this revelation of God in creation, it is not mysterious. It is not obscure. It is not something that must be arrived at after a process of logical deduction or human reasoning from what we observe in creation. Rather, God's Paul says that God makes the truth about himself absolutely clear and plain. He impresses the truth about himself upon our hearts through creation. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It is plain to them. And in verse 20, he says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. The person who denies the existence of God, the person who says there is no God, he will say something like this. Give me evidence. Give me evidence that there is a God. Give me proof that God exists. And the biblical response to that, according to Romans chapter 1, is the very earth on which you stand is proof that God exists. The sun that shines above your head is proof of the existence of God. The very hand by which you shake your fist at God is proof that he exists and that he lives. The vocal cords and the lungs and the air with which you declare with all your might the non-existence of God, in fact, are declaring even more clearly and loudly 
the existence, the truth of God. Simply to be a creature and to live in this creation is to be constantly confronted with the irrefutable proof and evidence that there is a God, that he is the creator, that he is almighty, that he is the Lord of all, that he is infinite in power and being, that he is good, that he is wise, that he is true. The creation is constantly declaring these things to us about God. John Calvin, he loved to refer to the universe as the theater in which God displays his glory for all people to see. In one place, Calvin wrote this. He says, God has in all parts of the world, in heaven and on earth, written and as it were engraved the glory of his power, goodness, wisdom and eternity. For the little birds that sing, sing of God. The beasts clamor for him. The elements dread him. The mountains echo him. The fountains and flowing waters cast their glances at him. And the grass and the flowers laugh before him. In a similar way, the hymn writer says this. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declares their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. God truly does speak to all people everywhere, in all places, that he is God, that he is the creator. And because he is God and the creator of all things, therefore, he is to be worshipped. He is to be thanked. He is to be obeyed. And because God's revelation and creation that he gives to all people unfailingly, and that all people receive without exception because of this, Paul can even go so far to say that all people know God. Everyone, he says, knows God. He says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, of course, this does not mean that all people know God as their savior from sin, but all people have within them a knowledge of God as their creator and their judge. But this fundamental knowledge of God that all people receive, this truth of God that all people receive through creation, this is what we suppress in unrighteousness. Uh, the word suppress refers to a forcible, even a violent kind of restraining or holding down something, and that something is constantly fighting back. I came across an excellent uh, picture of uh, what is meant by this idea of suppressing the truth of God and in, in, in the illustration of uh, imagine yourself. I'm sure you've had this experience in your, at a swimming pool and you have a, some kind of a volleyball or basketball and you're trying to hold it down underwater and the ball is constantly trying to come, bu- come back up to the surface and you have to struggle and to fight to keep it down. And that is the dynamic between the irrepressible revelation of God that he impresses upon every human mind and heart and our simple desire to hold down or deny or to restrain that revelation. And this dynamic of the unbelieving heart trying with all its might to deny what it knows deep down to be true, perhaps this is most clearly seen in the unbeliever who is deeply disturbed by the God he claims does not exist. Uh, It's been said that the atheist affirms two things. First, he says, I don't believe that God exists. 
And then he says, furthermore, I hate him. And that is that dynamic. We suppress the truth by nature of what we know is true. And because we do this, because we deny knowing the God that, in fact, we do know, we live and walk in spiritual darkness. Paul says in verses 21 and 22, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When a person rejects the truth of God revealed in creation, biblically speaking, he becomes a fool. He may be brilliant, he may be learned, he may be celebrated in the world for his vaunted wisdom, but because he denies the truth of God, he is a fool. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And all this thinking is ultimately futile. All this thoughts and reasonings do not do one thing to lift him out of his spiritual darkness and bondage, but they only keep him there. And Paul says in verse 20, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. The revelation that God gives to us in creation, it cannot save us. Only the gospel can do that. But the revelation that God makes of himself to all people through the things that he has made does this one thing. It renders every single human being guilty for not responding to that revelation with thanksgiving and worship and giving God the honor that is rightfully his. They are without excuse. Sometimes people object to the Christian faith because they, they think it isn't fair that people, that only people who have heard the gospel are given the opportunity for salvation. And so they'll say something like, what about all the people who lived in all the centuries uh, before the coming of Christ, who never had an opportunity to hear the gospel? Is it their fault that they uh, lived in ignorance of the truth of the gospel? Or they say, what about the isolated tribe in the jungles of South America who have not had contact with outsiders? Uh, how is it fair that they have no opportunity for salvation because they have been kept uh, from hearing uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. But the answer to that objection is given here in verse 20. Verse 20 says they are without excuse. No one is innocent. No one is innocent before God. On the day of judgment, no one, be, no one will be able to say to God, I did not know you. I was ignorant. You did not make yourself known to me. God will say, you did know me. You know that you knew me. I made myself known to you in the things that I've made. And I made myself known to you sufficiently that you should have thanked me. You should have obeyed me. You should have worshiped me. And so all are without excuse. And one thing that this means is that unbelief in the true and living God, this is never a matter of a lack of intelligence or a lack of information, but it is always a moral matter. It is always a moral function. Unbelief is always the sinful denial and suppression of the truth. And so we don't just fail to understand the truth of God like we might fail to understand a calculus problem. We don't just fail to believe in the true God like we might 
make an honest mistake somehow. But we know the truth. And we suppress it. We deny it. We reject it. It is a sinful rejection of what God has revealed. That is the heart of unbelief. And that is our natural response. Paul is saying this is the way we react and respond to what God has shown himself to us and the things that he has made. So that's the first response of our hearts. The second is this. We worship idols instead of the true God. When we look at verse 23, uh, Paul doesn't say there that uh, the results of people suppressing the truth of God, that as a result, they therefore, they stop worshiping something or they don't worship it or they don't worship anything. He doesn't say that people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, therefore, are somehow unreligious or they are spiritually neutral. But what does he say? He says in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What this means is that in their unbelief, what we do by nature is that we transfer the worship of the true God that belongs to him and we turn and we worship something else, something that God has created. And we make that our God. Verse 25 spells this out clearly. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And so those who fail to worship God, those who fail to bend the knee to the true God, the creator, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will inevitably, always, without exception, worship and be devoted to something other than God. God God has given us such a nature as creatures made in his image that it is impossible for us not to worship when you catch a fish and you bring it to shore and it's on the ground, you know, the fish starts flopping around like crazy. And the reason it does that is because it's trying to swim. But obviously it cannot swim through the air, so it just flops around. But the fish is only trying to do what a fish can only do by nature, and that is to swim. And in a similar way, God has so created us that we can only do what God has given us the nature to do or what he has made us to do, and that is to worship. We cannot help but worship. And we can only do, um, and and so we, we, we seek something to give ourselves to, uh, to worship. We are set apart from all of the other creatures that God made in this world in, in this one way that we seek, we seek our meaning, we seek life, we seek significance, we seek fulfillment in something beyond our physical existence, something beyond this material world in which we live. One philosopher put it this way. He said, I can spend all day looking at the beautiful earth and sea until I no longer want to. I can tire myself out feeling the breath of the beautiful air diffused and spread abroad. I can take in so much of the arrangement of the constellations that I need to go indoors and catch my breath. Yet the longing for that something more will follow me inside. 
And because we always have that longing for something more that follows us wherever we go, we will devote ourselves to something that we think will give that to us. And so if we reject the truth of God as he reveals that to us in creation, if we do not worship him as God, therefore we will turn our worship and devotion to something else, something other than God. And that, at that point, we become idolaters. We become idolaters. We exchange the glory of God. We exchange the majesty, the greatness of God, the truth of God for the false glory of images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, of course, our idols today do not look like the idols that were abundant in Paul's day, idols of wood and stone and the images of men and animals. Our idols are more sophisticated than that. We have created and we bow down to the idols of self, self-fulfillment, success, pleasure, or human love. But just like the idols in Paul's day, these are false gods. And anything that we devote ourselves to in the place of God is an idol. One theologian said, any God that is not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not God, but an idol. And the problem is, is that we become just like what we worship. And so if we worship idols that are false and worthless and dead, as all idols are, we become spiritually false and worthless and dead. And what's more, we stand condemned. We stand condemned before God for that idolatry. And we are condemned not only because we have committed many actual sins before God, which is true, but most fundamentally, most basically, we stand condemned because we have failed to make God who created us. We have failed to make him our treasure, our delight, the joy of our hearts. We have sought that in something else. And this is the tragic condition of the human race in our sin. In our folly, in our sin, and our foolishness, we have rejected the one who alone can give us true life and freedom. And for that, reject, for that rejection, the judgment that is for us to bear until the grace of God intervenes is the unbearable judgment of the wrath of God forever. But praise the Lord. He has not left us there. Praise God. He has not left us in our natural condition of folly, of idolatry, of the sinful rejection of God. But there is another revelation that God gives us, one that does something far more for us than simply to make us without excuse. And that revelation of God is his making himself known to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Unlike what we learn from God in the works of his creation, Jesus Christ, he is the complete, he is the supreme revelation of the glory of God because he not only reveals to us the eternal power, the divinity of God, but he reveals to us that God is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of grace, and a God of love and forgiveness. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. First of all, Christ came in order that our sins might be forgiven. Because to one degree or another, we are guilty of what Paul describes here. We have all been guilty 
of seeking that which only God gives us in the things of this world. We are all guilty at some point of idolatry, of exchanging God's glory for the worship of idols. We have not honored God. We have not worshipped God. We have not obeyed Him and thanked Him as we ought. But the good news is, if your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins of unbelief and idolatry are forgiven. God remembers them no more. He has given us this grace in His Son. And secondly, Christ came in order to fill our hearts with all that we have so foolishly and wrongly sought in the idols that we have made for ourselves. To know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, to serve, to worship the true God through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has given us. This is to be filled with the true life, the true joy, the true peace that is only found in Christ and is found inexhaustibly in Christ. So Christ gives us all that we so foolishly seek in the idols of our making. But praise God, He gives us that when we come to Him by faith. Now, I want to leave you this morning with just one point of application, and that is this. Because God reveals himself to all people uh, in the world, without exception, through his creation, you can be assured, you can know this, that the unbelieving world, whether they acknowledge it or not, they do receive our testimony to the truth of the true God and of Jesus Christ. We do receive our testimony. And what I, what I mean by that is this. Although our beliefs, although our worldview as Christians are antithetical to and far removed from the beliefs and the worldview of the unbelieving world, never, nevertheless, there is a true point of contact. There is true commonality between the Christian and the unbeliever. And that's because despite himself, the unbeliever truly does possess a knowledge of the true God. He may reject it, he may deny it, he may restrain it, but he cannot obliterate it. It is there. The unbeliever knows that there is a God, although at heart he is raging against him. But because he knows there is a God, because he knows God, as Paul says, your witness to him is a Christian. Your witness to him in the life that you live in obedience and following Christ. Your witness to him in the words that you speak to him when you communicate the truth of the gospel to him. You can know that that witness to the truth will find some kind of landing place within the heart of the unbeliever. Because he knows, he knows through creation, the God whom you worship through Jesus Christ. And what the unbeliever needs to see from you as a Christian is this. That the God whom you love and worship, the God who is revealed in creation and who has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is not a God who is, he, he is not only a God who is holy and just, but he is a God of love and grace and forgiveness. And the more that the Spirit of Christ is at work in you, the more that the Spirit of Christ by his word transforms you, and changes you so that you more and more reflect the image of Christ, who is the image of God. The more that the Spirit does that in you, the more you will be a means, one means at least, of God's showing to a dying, to a perishing world, the truth about him. That he is a God of forgiveness and grace and love. And that all who come to him, 
all who come to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to God as their Savior through Christ, who is the only one, the only one who can deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Let's pray.